Hello and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. I've been a journalist since the late 1980s and I'll be honest, I've been writing the Are Robots Going to Take Over Our Job story for just about all of that time. I've spoken to a lot of people with a lot of views and one of the liveliest is with me now, Dr Nicola Millard of British Telecom. Welcome. Hello. And now, you've still got a reputation put about by old people like me, I suppose, as BT's chief futurist or futurologist if you prefer, but I believe that's not your correct job title and hasn't been for some time, so perhaps we can start if you bring us up to date. So yeah, yeah I, uh, I now uh, have a slightly more boring job title, I head up customer insights and futures, uh, rather than being a futurologist. Um, I got very tired of the crystal ball jokes, um, because um, I do have a crystal ball actually, someone very kindly gave me one, but it um, doesn't work, sadly, so uh, so I, I've given up reading tea leaves, um, and uh, yeah, to be honest, it would be a very boring job if I looked at tea leaves or crystal balls all day, so... Uh, although my job title is more boring, um, my job is not. Um, so I'm part of BT's innovation team. Um, my job largely is to take a, a lot of the innovation that BT does. Um, I, I'm based at a lovely place called An Astral Park, which is our main research and innovation headquarters. So we're just outside Ipswich. Um, there's about 4,000 people, I think, on site there. Um, not all BT. Um, there's an innovation ecosystem, so partners and startups and all sorts of people are there. But we extend around the world as well, so um, the likes of MIT and Cambridge University and Tsinghua in Beijing and there are lots of people I talk to basically to try and synthesize down ideas and I'm part of BT's global division so my clients typically are very large um, uh, organizations like banks or retailers, insurers, um, airlines, um, really sort of try and synthesize and I guess speed date um, their problems and their sort of challenges with some of our innovation ecosystem. Um, and my job largely is to try and stimulate that conversation by doing a lot of research, hence don't need the crystal ball, it's all about data. Um, right. And it's always all about trying to figure out what the human factor is doing. So I'm a psychologist by background. Um, mm -hmm. And my role very much is to try and synthesize data around what, what a consumer's doing. What are employees doing? They're the same people, by the way. So we get a big intersection with the data. Um, and how does that then, how do those trends then shape the way that we work, um, shape the way that we, we develop customer experiences? So that's really what I do. Right, okay. Now, an awful lot of the uh, stuff I've been reading about lately uh, has been around about the area of robotics, by which we don't mean uh, little men with uh, little, uh, little metal men, do we? So now I know you've done a lot of, uh, in that area, but also on the area, in your chatbot. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about what that entails. Yeah, so I mean, uh, AI and robotics is the hot topic of the moment. Uh, uh, and to be honest... Um, AI, that's artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence, not artificial insemination, um, which I believe if I'm talking to farmers... Uh, Thank usually. you for bringing that up. That's yeah, great. Sorry um, about that. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Episode two are already uh, on to reproductive <laughs> issues. That's fine. Absolutely. Sorry to lower the tone there. Um, so, no, artificial intelligence. So, it's quite funny because I started my career in BT a very long time ago. It was 1990. My first job was developing neural networks, um, so artificial intelligence to support contact centre advisors uh, in diagnosing very complex network faults. Um, and here I am back, <laughs> sort of 20 years later, um, uh, doing stuff with neural networks. Um, and it's really fascinating. I'm, again, in the contact centre space, a lot of it's around chatbots. So chatbots being, you know, little bits of software algorithms that are allegedly good at conversation. And I do say allegedly good because one of the things that has always been very difficult is to unpick 
the nuances and complications of human language. Um, and frankly, I've yet to have a particularly stimulating conversation with Alexa or Siri or Cortana. Um, they're pretty dumb. Mm. So what we're trying to do at the moment is to, firstly, there's a lot of hype about chatbots out there. Um, so let's let's cut that back the hype and say what are they absolutely good at doing and to be honest there are some brilliant chatbots out there there are some really awful ones as well but the brilliant ones tend to be um, very uh, I guess deep and narrow is what I call them so they can have a conversation about one very specific topic but probably not a lot else ask me anything is very difficult mm. so if we take an example my current favorite chatbot is um, Margot the wine bot um, which is I wonder uh, why that could be uh, no to be honest it's because I don't like wine um, so I'm that's sorry logical. Okay. That's, that's, <laughs> so, that's fine so I, I don't like wine and I, I, I'm terrible at buying, selecting wine for food mm-hmm. um, and my friends are wine connoisseurs and I know that I've selected the wrong wine just by the, the look on their face when I present them with the wine so so Margot is, is Lidl's bot um, and basically I can have a conversation with Margot and ask Margot pretty much anything you know if, if it's pizza or chicken what is the best wine to go with that and obviously for Lidl it's then they sell the wine off the back of it so Mm. it's a brilliant example of a a very deep and narrow bot I can't have a conversation about anything else with Margot um, but you know I I can get the right wine which is what I want so I think you know when we're looking at chatbots a lot of it's around triage so I, I I call it IVR for digital, so those lovely press ones, press twos that we all love in contact centres, it's kind of the digital equivalent. So mm-hmm. what it's trying to do is, to, most customers have a goal, um, it's trying to get them to their goal, so it has a limited conversation with the customer about what they want. If it can solve it, it will point them towards the solution. If it can't, actually what we're looking at at the moment in the innovation space is how do we then seamlessly connect that with a contact centre advisor who has a, a miracle inside them, a human brain, and yes. human brains are pretty good at things like conversation and care and empathy. Um, well, that's all the, the thing things... about the, the retail experience. You were talking about wines from around there. I mean, if we uh, move away from uh, the the, um, the budget supermarkets and think about something like Waitrose, they have people in there who will be uh, who will be experts on wine. So if you go, you go up to them and talk to them, and they they all have these miracles inside their heads. I, I appreciate that uh, the uh, the chatbot probably brings the budget down. Something unimaginable um, broadening out uh, away from the wines if we could just uh, for a moment because you clearly don't like them anyway H- how does this affect us as human beings how does this affect us as, in terms of the jobs we're going to be applying for going forward and the skills we're going to need so obviously one, one of the areas I mean, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with contact centres my PhD was on contact centres I find them absolutely fascinating places um, because they are you know, very. It's, a, it's where humans and technology come together mm-hmm. um, so actually the, the, the stuff I've been doing majorly is around well, what's the effect of a chatbot on a contact centre advisor mm-hmm. actually to be honest it's not just chatbots, it's automation generally so as we push more self-service tools into the hands of customers using you know, the tools that they have, the smartphone apps um, you know all of those lovely things we can actually give control to the customer and they can do a lot more themselves what that then does is not make the contact center redundant mm-hmm. uh, what it makes it is it, the, the contact center starts to become um, the core for very complex and emotive stuff that actually automation can't do so whether it's you know where, um, the, the advisor has to pick up where the automation failed and keep keep you know hopefully we can skills based route it to the right advisor we can give them access to the conversation that the customers had with the bots mm-hmm. so they don't have to repeat themselves so there's all that kind of stuff we've got problem solving so um, if a computer has said no and, and things have fallen down the cracks in process yep. 
how do people then stalk, stick the fork into the spaghetti of back-end process and then solve the problem? And that often does require a human brain. There's also an element, isn't there, this needn't be a chatbot as such. Some of what you've just described, a competent customer relationship management uh, system could, uh, could, yeah, could yeah, handle yeah. that. I mean, the idea that I tweet at uh, some company because I'm annoyed with it or email them uh, with my displeasure and then pick up the phone and call them and the my phone number doesn't fire up the latest tweet or at least the latest email I've sent them, that's nothing to do with the chatbot. That's uh, to do no. with the fact that uh, they haven't got the uh, much more basic systems organised, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, I always say these things don't work by magic, they work by data. And to be perfectly honest, a lot of the projects I've been working on, whether it's a bot or automation generally, the first question I have to ask is, well, where's your data? Mm. Um, so, And this was a problem we had in the 90s. Um, so, uh, in fact, it was one of the reasons why the neural network we had failed because it didn't have the right data and traditionally enterprise data is often very chaotic it's on multiple databases it's really kind of um, volatile um, uh, it's sometimes very contradictory so the first question is to say well if you want something like this to work you need to sort your data out first so your CRM systems your knowledge bases um, so that this can this bot or, or whatever automation actually has the right data to work with in order to have a, a, a good conversation with the customer. So that's the first problem. Let's not run before we can walk, mm. which is why actually the deep and narrow tends to work better. Yes. Because again, deep and narrow data sets are, are probably easier than ask me anything. So mm. uh, so if you can just get, get data optimized into one little funnel that the AI can feed on, um, yeah. that works pretty well. Um, so again, I, I hate the word artificial intelligence because frankly, it's not really that intelligent. Um, I prefer augmented intelligence. So um, let's augment people rather than replace them. So your, your, your question about you know, what does, it, does this do for jobs? Well, we're already tangibly seeing in industries like the contact centre, also in manufacturing, what happens is the boring, mundane, transactional stuff goes because you can automate that. What you're left with is actually the complicated stuff so in manufacturing evidence is they're employing just as many humans uh, those humans are actually servicing machines now and similarly um, in contact centers what we're seeing is call volumes are going down mm -hmm. and contact volumes are going down but complexity is going up so those contacts when they do come in are longer far more complex so actually what we're seeing is the skill level in, in an agent in a contact center is no longer a 16 year old with a script it just actually needs to be somebody who is empowered who has a lot of knowledge but also is probably backed up by it's actually the same systems to be perfectly honest to handhold does that mean the 16 year old with a script isn't going to have a problem finding the job does it mean that they've got to go and uh, get more skills I and mean, how do they cope with the present day or the immediate future well this is the dilemma because I keep saying in a lot of jobs now um, I've, I've been talking to some lawyers recently as well because um, is going to be another one of those professions where the easy stuff is going to go so when you're starting out in a job traditionally you would learn on the easy stuff now if the easy stuff doesn't exist the problem then is how do you how do you train people and, and I think you know it's pointing towards you need upfront investment in training um, because you can't just drop someone in and say hey you've had two days training brilliant you can you can go now um, you're gonna have to train them a lot more similarly we know that as skills get replaced which they inevitably inevitably will be that you know mid-career training or even end of career training um, you know you may need to retrain multiple well, this times. Is what, it's the end of career stuff you know the fact that I'm in my 50s doesn't give me a uh, 
um, a vested interest at all, really, Mino. At the end of career trading, that's where the employer is going to struggle to actually get uh, any um, uh, any payback on the investment they're going to put in. So how do you make a business case if you're in your, you know, maybe a little more senior than I'm in your late 50s or something, and you're worried that uh, uh, you're not going to be able to cap off your pension plan with the, um, uh, with the input you'd hoped because you don't have the skills and you think your employer, probably for the few years you've got left, isn't going to want to put the uh, time and effort in? Well, the other thing is, um, so longevity is changing the game in terms of work as well. So actually, you're, you're, you're a youngster guy. Um, so, you know, um, you, you Can may I have that in writing? Never mind flattering. The questions will get easier. Okay, I promise. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there's a lot of work. For example, Linda Grattan at London Business School has done some wonderful stuff around, well, if we have a 100-year life, what does that mean? And actually, one of the things is we could be working longer. We may not retire in, in our 60s. We may be retiring into our 70s. But to be honest, if we're doing a job that engages us and we like, uh, I don't think it's a problem. It's, it is a problem if you're doing a job that doesn't engage you. I think that, that's more yeah. of the challenge. Um, and this is starting to sound like a great thing for, if you like, rather fortunate, um, possibly bordering on middle-class people uh, who do jobs primarily that they enjoy. Uh, you know, tell me I've got to write for another 10 years. Oh, well, or do this for another 10 years. Oh, well, that's fine. I'll, I'll cope as long as I'm physically up to it and I've got all my marbles. Uh, you know, you, I take nothing for granted. But, uh, I, you know, that, that's that's not a problem to me. If, it'd be, if I were a manual worker, if I was pounding around on a shop floor or something, I might think, well, that's going to be a bit tough. Yeah, but again, I, I, I think we maybe underestimate some of the skills that we do have that are very unique to humans. And you don't need a degree or a, you know vast amounts of experience to be empathetic or caring or things like that. So we're, we're sort of seeing that some of those skills that are probably underappreciated at the moment may be more appreciated. Mm -hmm. um, so and, and obviously, you know, that could be one role for, for older employees. Admittedly, augmentation might come in. So, um, so if you're working on a building site, for example, um, we're seeing these exoskeletons now that can augment people so as maybe their their strength goes a little bit um, they augment them with an exoskeleton a bit alien style you know um, uh, and uh, you're able to to augment yourself to do a job that perhaps you couldn't do without the exoskeleton so People think of that as something new, but immediately you started using equipment. You know, if you started using a hammer and nail, you're knocking a nail into a wall in a way that you never could have without that particular piece of equipment. Uh, this is actually a massive, 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 massive development of uh, just having the right tool, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've always said AI is not, it's not, it's not the miracle. It's, it's simply another, another tool, um, another, another uh, part of automation in our kit bag, if you like, mm. that will help us and augment. And I always say the best AI we don't even notice, to be honest. Um, so everything from the AI and the camera and your phone that, that auto-focuses and takes light up and down. So you don't have to auto to play around with, with lenses anymore. The AI does it all for you. So I can take fantastic pictures. I'm like, my dad was a photographer and you know, he, he taught me lots of things around the mechanics of photography. I don't need that anymore. I just need the ability to spot a good well, picture. My phone's even started reminding me that I haven't looked at these photos that I've taken, which I <laughs> in the modern age is the whole idea <laughs> Oddly. yeah well there's also yes I, I think nudging is an interesting one uh, around the, the technology can start to, to personalize things for you learn what your your habits are what your likes and dislikes are and then potentially nudge you but I always say if that becomes annoying 
you just stop sharing your data. And again, these things don't happen by magic, they happen yeah. by data. So I call it a me economy. So if I share my data, I want something back. And there's a spectrum. There's personalization, which I'm kind of used to. That's what Amazon does, that's what Netflix does. Then we can, from personalization, we know who you are and what you do. We can then become more proactive. So nudge um, and say, you know, did you know? Or uh, did, did you expect this? Or yeah. just it, reminders. Isn't there also the, what I would call a totally pointless nudging? You know, first few drafts of uh, fitness technology that you might wear around your wrist, for example, mentioning no brand names, will actually tell you um, you're missing. You've missed your uh, step target for five days in a row. Would you like to lower your step target? And you think, well, that's, yeah. that's not the idea. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to get fitter, you know, the idea is sort of just do 2,000 instead of 10. You'll be fine. Yeah, and I, I think um, that there's a fine line. I mean, obviously, that a lot of that's to do with gamification, which is yeah. always an interesting topic to, to start. Again, part of my PhD was on gamification and around, you know, how do you create something that's motivational, not demotivational, because um, life isn't a game. Um, but, you know, I think the, the proactive piece has to be valuable for me. And again, if it's not telling me things I want to know, yeah. I'm not going to share my data. Sure. And then, of course, once you've got personalised and proactive, you can start to get predictive. Um, and that's where the spooky algorithm stuff comes on. So, you know, supermarkets that understand from your data that you're about to get divorced. Um because there's apparently a pattern. Um, so, you know, knowing that and then doing something about it are two very different things, which is why, again, you probably need a human in the loop um, to say, well, what is appropriate in this situation if we think that th this is true? So, again, it's augmenting intelligence rather than necessarily you know, replacing people. But yeah. what the data does is give us possibly a way of, of understanding the world. But again, Algorithms are models, and models are never exact copies of the world. And, and models can be wrong as well. So that's again why we need certainly ethics built into AI because data might look neutral. It's not. It can be as well. So AI that can show us its homework. I think that's right. So if you were to um, look at, say, the job market, particularly in the contact centre area, just at the moment, what's changing immediately? What do people need to? know if they're thinking of going into that what's uh, uh, what, perhaps what's happened already that some people might think is actually in the future yeah well it, it's gradually happening I think firstly um, it's becoming much more uh, professionalized so there are qualifications in it so you know it, it's not a Mac Mac career anymore mm. um, so you know that there's there are career paths I think the skill sets are Actually, I mean, the fundamental skill sets are you have to be good at dealing with customers and you have to be empathetic and you have to be caring and you have to be innovative and creative. You have to be good conversationalists and not just on the phone anymore because you've got tons of channels being thrown at you, whether it's social media or chat. Or, so you just have to be a good communicator. Um, you don't necessarily need to be an expert, although expertise is an interesting one. Uh, again, with the neural network we tried in the 90s, we try to uh, get expertise from our engineers who are doing mm. complex fault diagnostics and it was, I did a lot of the interviews because that was the only way to get the data at the time so um, we asked engineers how did you diagnose faults and you get this lovely decision tree and then you'd hit the bottom and you go why did you decide it was that and not that and they go gut feeling and I'd have my head in my hands at that point because you can't put gut feeling into a neural network so again you don't need experts, but actually experts have stuff in their heads. So I wonder again, if you could put gut feeling into a neural network if you knew exactly all the components that went into that gut feeling. Because it's got to be based an awful lot on the experience that yeah, they may yeah. not even be aware that they're drawing on. That's the trouble, it's tacit. Yeah, um, yeah. And unless I mean, you common can, sense isn't really common sense, it's extreme learning, isn't it? 
Precisely. I mean, and, and that's why it's very difficult to, to develop a bot with common sense. Actually, there is a project uh, ongoing at the moment around how you develop uh, a learning network that has common sense. No, you Given can't do it. It's common sense. Exactly. Okay, Nicola, I get the feeling we could fill about five podcasts into with this, but we probably shouldn't. So if people would like to know more about you and your research, where should they go on the web? Where, where can they find out more? Where you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I think I'm fairly straightforward to find there. there. I'm at Doc Nicola on Twitter. And you can also find a lot of stuff on our BT Global Services blogs and pages around some of the research I do. And I would highly recommend listeners do so because this is really, really interesting stuff. So, Dr. Nicola Millard, thank you very much. Pleasure. And many thanks to all of you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. Do have a look at my website at nearfuturist.net where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. You'll also find my speaker showreel. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or moderator of your technology event, do have a look and then get in touch with my agent, Zippero Wright. That's Z-I-P-P-O-R-A-H at jillybushel.com, jilly with an I-E. All the details are, of course, on the website. The Near Futures podcast will go fortnightly from the 19th of November. My name is Guy Clapperton. See you then.